Our scripture passage for this evening comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22, going to chapter 2, verse 3. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's ask him to do so. Lord, would you be with us tonight? Give us your spirit's presence so that we can not only know your love but so that we can live that very same love toward one another. Use your word tonight to burn away from us any sins within the body, gossip, slander, envy, anger, wrath. Lord, use your word tonight to deal with each and every one of us individually so that such sins become unthinkable within the body of Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, On more than one occasion, I have walked into my house and heard screaming. Now, I know you have seen my children. You can't imagine that being a thing, but it's true. And uh, I believe it's entirely uh, possible that I have walked into my house and heard my son scream, Oh no, you killed me! Now, the only reason that I do not immediately call 911 or perform a citizen's arrest of one of my children is because I understand the context Uh, Context is the thing that tells us what's going on when somebody says something. Uh, A statement in one context could be heard in an entirely different way in a different context. So in this instance, my kids are playing a video game. So the statement would be much more terrifying. Oh no, I just died, you killed me, right? It would be much more terrifying if they were in a back alley in downtown Jackson, for example. right? You're going to pick up that phone the second you hear it. Context is always crucial to understanding what's really going on when someone says something that you think is strange or confusing. Tonight's passage begins in verse 22 with a statement that can seem very strange to our ears. At least it's a verse that can seem strange if we've forgotten what comes before and if we haven't looked at what comes after. Listen to the troublesome phrase. I mean, you hear it immediately. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. When I hear that, my thoughts immediately swirl in my head. Is the Bible teaching I can purify my own soul? Is Peter saying that I can wash myself clean of sin? I'm so confused. This doesn't sound like what I've heard before. 
And so what this means in this instance is we have a classic case of read the surrounding verses. We can answer those confused questions just by looking around a little bit. For one thing, Peter just said four verses before that we were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. He said in verse 2 that we have peace with God because of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And a few verses from now, Peter says that it's only through Jesus Christ that we do anything acceptable to God at all. And in two more chapters, Peter is going to make one of the most straightforward, beautiful statements of the gospel any of us can hear. In chapter 3, verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. (coughs) And so if you see a verse that says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, You have to keep the context in mind. This is a gospel-saturated letter. And so when Peter says this, we know that he's saying it in light of the gospel message that we can only be cleansed from our sins through Jesus. That still leaves us asking the question, what is Peter saying? What is he positively saying here? Well, if we took this section here and we took the whole section that we just read what we see is that Peter's overarching goal here is that we need to love each other. He's talking to a people who have trouble loving each other. Sometimes we think of the first century church, we idealize them, we think they must have been just perfect people. Wouldn't it be great if we could all be like the early church? And yet Peter has to tell them to love each other. He has to tell them to get rid of hypocrisy and malice and all these things because they are a people who have every single one of those things in their hearts. And so when he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, I'm persuaded when you read all of the remaining contexts of the book and the context of the New Testament, that he is talking about trusting in Christ here. This phrase, obedience to the truth, is the same thing as saying believing in Jesus. All right, when he says obeying the truth, he's really saying believe in Jesus. Now, you might think I'm being really creative there. You might be thinking, man... You're not supposed to be creative in the pulpit, Reverend Parker. You're supposed to just say what the text says. Well, I, I, I want to make the case here that when, oh, when, he, when he says obedience to the truth, he means believing in Jesus. That's actually something Paul does earlier. If you look, and you can look if you want to, but you know, I, I don't frequently make you turn pages. We usually stay in one place. But if you want to look, Paul in Galatians 5, 7, makes a statement very similar to this. Remember, he's talking to a church that has begun to reconsider the gospel of justification by faith alone. They're considering implementing works, making works a part of the gospel. And Paul speaks to them and he says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? That's the phrase he uses, obeying the truth. And in in that context, what does Paul mean by obeying the truth? He means believing in Jesus alone. For Paul, believing in Jesus alone is the only way to obey the truth. And I think Peter is using that phrase, obeying the truth, in the same exact way here. So another way, if you want to take it and sort of fix the statement so it's a little less confusing, I think what Peter is saying is this, having purified your souls By believing in Christ alone, love one another earnestly from a pure heart.
What Peter is doing here this evening is he's setting before us the consequences of believing the gospel. There are certain obligations that come with a new heart. Certain things that happen within us when we rest in Christ alone for our salvation. And in particular, Peter says, we have an obligation to love. And Peter doesn't just assert it, he argues for it. He actually argues for it vigorously. And I'm intrigued by his argument. I'm, I'm not sure if you think much about the sort of arguments that the, the gospel writers and the, and the letter writers use, but there is a thought process to what Peter says here, and I'm going to present to you Peter's logic. His logic is this. God used his word to give you new life. His word is abiding. Therefore, the new life you have should also be abiding. And then there's a fourth, sort of a, a second consequence. Not only, not only should the new life that we have be abiding, but the new life we have should be abiding and the love we have should be abiding too because they're interchangeably connected to each other. And so in other words, because God's word is sure and lasting and eternal, don't think for a moment that the obligation to love is something you only need to do once or something that's only optional. See, God's word is eternal. God's word is forever. God has changed you forever. And that means you should love forever. It should become your language. It should become your lifestyle. It should become the way you live. It should be what you're known for. It should be your reputation. So let's take that logic that Peter uses here and let's focus on three features in his chain of argument. And as we focus on the three features, we'll see just how strong our obligation to love each other really is. Because he's not just making a suggestion here. He's not just saying the church would be better off if people loved each other. He's not just saying um, the church would be a more pleasant place or you can avoid conflict if you do this. He's actually saying our obligation to love is as strong and abiding and lasting as the word itself. And so our three points this evening are abiding letter, abiding life, and abiding love. Abiding letter, abiding life, and abiding love. First, in terms of Peter's logic, his thinking begins with the abiding letter. It's really the foundation of everything else that he says. So as he puts it, the living and abiding word of God. In Peter's argument here, all of it begins with the word of God and grows out of it. And so because the word of God is abiding, the new life and the new love that we have should also be abiding. Now, when we use this phrase, living and abiding word of God, I think our instinct is specifically to think about our Bibles. Maybe even our, our thoughts are drawn to our physical Bibles. Uh, we think about the scriptures. And certainly what he's saying does include the content of the Bible, but it's actually more specific than that because by the time Peter's written this, the Bible hasn't been finished. He's got all of the Old Testament, and they certainly the canon of the Old Testament was closed by that time. But even as Peter is writing this, they probably the book of uh, of, of Revelation isn't written. Probably the, the book of uh, Second Timothy 
hasn't been written yet. There are books that are still being written in the New Testament canon, possibly the Gospel of John as well. And so you don't have a complete New Testament yet. What Peter is thinking of here when he talks about the word is actually not some physical Bible like we think of. Rather, he's talking about the content of the Bible. And I'm not just making that up. He says it in verse 25. He says, this word, he clarifies, this word is the good news that was preached to you. So in this case, he's not talking about a book. He's not really talking about the Bible, although what he says includes the Bible. He's talking about the message of the Bible and specifically the gospel. And then after he says, I'm talking about the gospel, he takes this passage from the Old Testament and he applies it to the gospel. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So Peter, Peter here is quoting from the prophet Isaiah, and he, what he's saying is the message Isaiah was talking about 600 years before was really the gospel message itself. And it is a gospel message that is living and abiding. Now, when we say something's abiding, we mean something that endures even if all sorts of grim things happen. He wants us to know it will never end. It will never change. The world around us is in tremendous flux. It's always changing. But the message of the gospel is the same today as it was in Peter's day. Now, how do we know that? Well, we test it against scripture, of course. But we also know it because, look, flesh, flesh changes. It dies. Our world changes. It grows. It develops. It can become nearly unrecognizable after a while but not the gospel. We should declare and preach the gospel so faithfully to the text of scripture that if the apostles traveled, if they time traveled from the year 50 AD and they arrived on the other side of the world in Pearl, Mississippi in 2019 and they sat down here with us, they might be confounded by the lights They might be confused by the music. What is that box that is making those sounds? Uh, they, They might be confused by the carpet. They might be confused by the fact that I'm standing instead of sitting, which would have been the custom of teachers. Uh, They might be confused by the dress. What is that thing that, uh, well, that sometimes hangs off of your shirt in the mornings? (laughs) They they might be confused. They'd be delighted by the air conditioning. Um, They might wonder, why are you shaking hands? Why aren't you kissing? You know, they'd look around and wonder why. All of these things would be huge changes, right? The world changes. The incidentals change. Yet we should love the gospel and we should preach the gospel in such a way that they might not recognize anything else. But they could say, "That that is the gospel. That is the message that I preach. That's the message I took to all those churches. That's what I spent all those years writing about. All these other things are different, but one thing I know, the gospel hasn't changed. Praise God. Flesh changes. We get older. We age. Uh, I don't look like I did when I was 17. At least my wife keeps reminding me of that. And unless you're 17, you don't look like you did when you were 17 either. Um, grass, Grass changes. 
Uh, Flowers die, flowers live. And yet the gospel that we preach and declare and love, it's the same one that you heard when you were younger. It's the same one that you're hearing now. The message is believe on the Lord Jesus. Turn from your old life. Know the forgiveness and pardon that comes from Jesus. Isn't it good to know that incidentals will change, buildings might change, people might change, and yet the message that you have fed on your entire life does not, at its core, change. That's what he's calling us to here in this passage. And Peter's saying this gospel is the message we are called to submit to in every day of our lives. But Peter also wants us to know that the gospel isn't just a message. Besides being an unchanging message, the second thing he tells us this evening is that the gospel is also something that gives us an abiding life. In verse 23, Peter says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So Peter says, the gospel that God used didn't just deliver you a message. The message of the gospel was the instrument God used to give you regeneration, to give you new birth. His spirit came, worked together with the text message, the the gospel message of scripture, and his spirit came in and the two combined to change us in a profound way. Have you ever tried to mix Mentos and Diet Coke? Uh, I think our kids have in school, at least they talk about it, right? He gave me a thumbs up. They've done this in school. They, you put the Mentos in the Diet Coke and boom, this thing goes crazy. Um, or maybe if, you, if you've done a lot of uh, school experiments or science experiments with your kids, you've probably mixed baking soda and vinegar. Everybody's mixed baking soda and vinegar. Also a good way to get rust out of your tub. I don't know how that helps the text right now, but I'm just helping you out. Just a life lesson. Um, But if you combine those two things together, if you have them separate, nothing happens. If on their own, each of them, they just sit there, inert. But then when you combine them together, you get this explosive result in both cases. The Bible is perfect, right? And and without error and wonderful, but without regeneration, it just sits there. It just sits there like a trophy on a shelf. And in the same way, if you could be born again uh, without hearing the message of the gospel, if you could be given a new life without any context whatsoever, you'd have no savior to put your trust in. But see, just like Mentos and Diet Coke or just like baking soda and vinegar, each of these things on their own does nothing. It's only when they come together that the explosive, joyful response of salvation actually happens. We need the abiding word, and we need the abiding life. We need to be born again. We need both of those things. Only in that moment do the blinders come off, and we see the gospel message for what it truly is. There is no faith in Christ without hearing the message of Christ. But there's also no faith in Christ without the Spirit coming in and giving us new birth. So before the Spirit changed our hearts, our eyes were were clouded. We, We didn't love the message. We found nothing appealing about the message. We found nothing appealing about Jesus. But then someone spoke the truth to us and the Spirit worked in us and then something happened. 
One writer calls it the expulsive power of a new affection. So love for Jesus entered in, and and when it did, our love for worthless things was just driven out. God, God didn't just persuade us that the world doesn't matter anymore. He gave us something more lovely. He didn't just persuade us to be negative Nancys who, who don't like anything and say no to everything. But instead, he gave us something more beautiful and something more worthy of our affection. He really, truly showed us Jesus Christ for who he is. And when the Spirit does that, he persuades us from our very core that Jesus is better than the world. That Jesus is better than anything the flesh can give us. That Jesus is better than everything else in life. And he convinces us of that. And especially that Jesus is better than living for ourselves now. Which leads, of course, to our third point. And really, Peter's application here, all of this has been in the service of making this application. Because... He introduces it in verse 22, and then he picks it up again in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from, from a pure heart. And then he spends the next three verses laying all of this foundation that we just looked at over the last two points. God has driven that self-love out of our hearts by his spirit and he's replaced it with a love for him and a love for what he loves. So because of that, we can actually do the thing that Peter just said. We actually can love each other sincerely and earnestly. Now, if you compare... This sermon to every single one that's come before in Second in First Peter, I have to say, it feels like a lot more logic going on here, a lot more argumentation going on here. And maybe you think this is an awful lot of argument to get us out of our own way. But I would argue that no, actually it's not. This is not a whole lot of argument to get us out of our own way, because I want you to consider how much you love yourself. Consider how much we love ourselves. Consider how much and how often we believe in our heart of hearts and with our actions and with our thoughts that we really are more important than others. And when you see that, and when you believe that about yourself, you know that it's going to take a lot, right? It's like a fire and trying to put it out with a little watering can. No, we need the hose, And that's what Peter's done here. He's pulled out the hose. He has pulled out the fire hose here. Um, And, you know, I see this selfishness in my own heart. Every single time I hear that there's been a mudslide in Central America, I think to myself, man, it stinks to live there. I'm glad I live here. Uh, Every time I hear that there's been a tsunami somewhere, I think that's terrible. I'm so glad there are no shorelines near me. You know, and, and that's selfish. It, it may not be the worst sin you've ever heard somebody confess to you, but it, I tell you this, it's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the selfishness of the human heart. And so Peter has been making the case that Jesus is better than you. And he's been showing us that one of the things the Spirit does in my heart is he convinces me, Adam, God is better than you. And when you believe that, you'll love your neighbor finally. All right, I just said the magic word. I just said the word love. 
it is a modern mistake to think about love as a feeling. Certainly, the biblical meaning of love is not that it's a feeling. Love, according to the Bible, is a way of life that fulfills the Bible, that fulfills the law of God. It puts others first. It shows respect for others. It does things that helps others and promotes flourishing and true joy in their lives. In other words, love seeks the good of others. So let me encourage you not to convince yourself that you love others just because you feel feelings of affection. Just because you feel feelings doesn't mean you love. For Jesus, love is an action. Luke 6.35, love your enemies and do good to them and lend expecting nothing in return. Three verbs there. Do good. Lend, expect nothing, right? That's what it means to love. There is no reference to feelings, no reference to emotions here, no reference to the underlying affections that can give rise to these actions. For Jesus, you know you love your enemies when you do good to them and when you lend to them and when you expect nothing in return. Or think about the greatest show of love that we find in all of Scripture. What does Jesus say? He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. Self-sacrifice, not a feeling, not an emotion. Uh, Now, there is such thing as romantic love. There is such thing as familial love, and that's a type of affection. But when the text of Scripture wants to present us with love in its purest and highest, most distilled form, what does it do? It presents us with an action. Think of Ephesians 2.4. God, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Right? No feelings, no affection here. Action. Love. Action. Love. Action. Love is best spoken of biblically as a commitment of truth to the good and flourishing of another person. So that's why in marriage, it's more important to love than it is to feel. I'm not saying feelings and emotions aren't important in marriage. uh, But sometimes when things are going tough, my wife and I, and it's been a while since we've had to say it, thankfully, but we will say to each other, I love you, but I don't like you right now. We will say that to each other. And I I honestly think it's very healthy in a marriage to be able to say that. In other words, the commitment's there, but the feeling's not there right now. And that's okay. We can make it without the feeling. We can't make it without the love. It's in the same way in the church. Sometimes we don't like each other very much. But God says we should always love each other. What does it look like to love each other sincerely? In chapter 2, verse 1, he shows us. First off, he leaves it with the word so. And in logic class, and I keep talking about logic because there's an argument here. In logic class, that word so is the statement of conclusion. He's concluding an argument here. And so he's saying because of all this stuff that came before, so... Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. 
he mentions five heart attitudes toward other Christians that can absolutely poison and run through the body of Christ like a deadly disease. And Peter's application is, put them all away. The word here is the word for throwing off a filthy piece of clothing. Throw it away. Um, no sermon would be complete without a reference to my father. My, my dad used to work in the fertilizer business, and I remember sometimes there would be disasters involving the anhydrous ammonia tank. Is anyone? I, I don't usually ask for a show of hands. Who knows what anhydrous ammonia smells like? All right, very few. You are very fortunate. Listen, it's like, it's like old eggs that have gone bad and vinegar and bleach and um, cat vomit. You know, it's like all the worst things you can think of just mixed together into one glorious, horrible creation. One just the most truly wretched odor that there is. And my father would sometimes come home completely drenched in anhydrous ammonia because the tank would have leaked. And when he would come home, my mother would make him strip off all of his clothes outside. And she would not wash his clothes because she knew there was no washer on the planet that could clean clothing soaked in anhydrous ammonia. She wouldn't even let him bring that junk into our house. And it still smelled, but it was still awful. But that is how Peter says we should react to to malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Slander, you know, is is all that stuff that we don't say to someone to their face. Um, In the body of Christ, we don't go to other people with problems. If we go to other people, if we don't go to the people we have a problem with, and we do talk to other people about it, that's slander and that's gossip. And Paul tells us this evening that we have a duty to throw that away. If we see any of that in our own hearts, we have to get that junk out of here as if it was soaked in anhydrous ammonia. It's going to ruin the whole house. Now here's the problem. As we're even saying this, as we're even talking about these practical things, maybe your first instinct is to start thinking of how somebody hasn't done this for you, right? Somebody slandered you. Somebody wronged you. Somebody was hypocritical. And maybe you're thinking of how much nicer it would be if they treated you better. And what I would say is, let's do this. Don't worry about your neighbor. Trust me, each of us have enough heart problems as, as it is. Let's start cleaning our own houses before we worry about what our neighbor's house looks like. Let us grieve when we look in here and we see envy in our hearts. How good are we at rejoicing when our neighbors get something good? If we're bad at it, let's grieve it and let's start focusing on the good things others have gotten and learn the freedom that God has given us to love their good and love their flourishing. How good are we, how good are we, not your neighbor, how good are we at making sure to guard against slander? If someone says something negative about someone else, are you quick to defend their good name? Or do you lean in and sort of listen with a sense of intrigue? Peter says, put it away, throw it out of the house, don't let it in. Kill it with fire. 
If you've tasted the goodness of God, if you know how glorious it is, if you've, if you've had your heart changed by the Spirit working together with His unchanging gospel message, there is no room for any of this junk in our lives. Only love. Only love. Uh, you've heard the, the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before. People who are hurt, hurt other people. Well, the title of this sermon is Loved People, Love People. Uh, loved People, Love People. I really think that's what Peter is doing here. He's really making that argument. We should love people because we've been loved. The love's been shown to us. But do you see what Peter's been doing? Yes, yes, Peter's been arguing, of course, we should love others. But he's showing us that when we love, we love from a place of absolute security. Why do I need to keep looking out for number one when everything I need is truly taken care of? You know, whenever we're selfish or whenever we're hurtful or whenever we're envious of others, we, in part we do it because we've put ourselves at the center and we've forgotten the faithful one that takes care of us. We forget the hymn, All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness. And we forget who's faithful and we forget who's provided and we forget that he's taken care of all that we really needed. But notice this. Peter mentions these five wicked hard attitudes that we should put away, but he doesn't say what we should put in their place. Or does he? I think he does in the last two verses of our reading because Peter says in, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2, he says, like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. When we sin against others, we do it because we're longing for something, and the truth is it's because we're longing for ourselves. We're longing for our ambition. We're longing for all we can get. We're longing for our self-satisfaction. But Peter says, no, 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 no. You have all of those things in Christ Jesus already. He's, he's provided all that you need in his son. The answer then is to love the pure milk of the gospel and be nourished by that. He's faithful. He's always been faithful. He'll always be faithful. You never have to question that. You are not in charge of your own satisfaction joy and fulfillment because you have a heavenly father who loves you and a son who's died for you and a spirit that is every day taking Christ, applying him to our hearts and showing us daily what it means to have all that we need so that we can truly, sincerely and earnestly love one another. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for the ways we don't love one another when we should. By your beloved Son, enable us to love you. And give us the strength to truly put away the heinous and ugly sins against one another that really do come so naturally to our hearts. Help us to put them off. Cast them away. Help us to throw them outside because they don't belong to us. No, we are your people born of your spirit, 
established by your word. We're new people. (coughs) Give us hearts of love. Help us put others first. Help us to refuse to hear slander about others or gossip. Help us not to envy one another. Protect us from malicious feelings toward one another. Help us only to seek each other's good. This does not come naturally to us. That's why we're praying right now. That's why you've said this in your word, because you know it doesn't come naturally to us. And yet we know that you are sanctifying us and changing us. Give us hearts to obey your word and love one another. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.